2023 edition of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, co-hosted by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White and I'm going to pass to my colleague, Sean O'Conroy. This podcast is taking a look back on a very seminal event which took place recently in the European Parliament building. In fact, it was held between the 15th and 17th of May 2023, entitled Beyond Growth, Pathways Towards Sustainable Prosperity in the EU. And today's podcast is going to be perhaps one of a little series for us, because Caroline White and myself attended this conference, and we're still digesting the richness of all the presentations. There were so many different topics, so many exciting discussions that took place. And we want to convey as quickly as we can the wealth of thinking that's there and give an indication as to how it can be accessed. There is a Slack channel and we give details on our website. And we also want to mention, and we'll mention it at the end, that copies and links to the presentations and recordings of those speaking are all available. The event was a watershed from a number of different aspects. In fact, some of those attending called it the Woodstock for economics. It was seminal, though, because President of the Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, gave full access to all of the facilities at the European Parliament to, to host the event. And also, it was organized and supported by a group of MEPs, including two from the centre-right parties, including our own Maria Walsh. One of the other reasons why it was quite seminal was the attention it got from NGOs and from citizens across Europe. There were more than 2,400 people attended in person. And there were more than four and a half thousand registered online. The event included seven plenary sessions and 20 focus panels and probably hundreds of speakers. So this was no ordinary event. And we hope we can convey some of that to you in this podcast and perhaps in subsequent ones. Over to you, Caroline. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. As Sean said, this was a really an extraordinary thing to be able to attend and I felt very fortunate to be able to do so. There are different interpretations of what beyond growth means as a phrase and you could hear some somewhat different interpretations in the way some of the officials spoke, the language that they used. It was clear that for some of them it wasn't so much a question of setting aside GDP as a goal altogether and concentrating on other goals, which is very much what people in FASTA would, would advocate and many others, and I would say a large majority of people at the conference, but there's also a certain amount of those who would believe it means more including growth as a goal still, but adding other things as other goals. So there are these different interpretations and there was a certain amount of ambiguity about that, I would say. But the reason that we were so interested in attending is because FASTA, I mean, the whole sort of modus operandi of FASTA for the last 25 years has been on how we can achieve an economy that can thrive and enable people to flourish within planetary boundaries and a big part of that has been getting away from the obsession with expanding productivity, expanding production, expanding resource use, extracting resources infinitely into the future. So for us this has been really core, so it's extremely exciting and encouraging to see just how much more interest there is in this now than there was 
when we started 25 years ago. It's, it's incredible. And over the last four or five years, we've had more and more connections with other groups. It seems like groups are popping up all over the world that are working on this kind of thing. There's the Wellbeing Economy Alliance that brings together a lot of those. And that's all very encouraging. We're part of a cultural creatives project with other NGOs in Ireland working on ways to change narrative about the economy and move it towards a well-being economy, a vision of a well-being economy, and to help to recognise and critique the way assumptions are made about progress and how we can change those. So this is something we've been very interested in for a long time. We work on policy, uh, we produce, we sit on various advisory boards and so on. And so we've been trying to get more attention onto this debate for ages. So it's just really amazing to see suddenly that there is, it seems sudden in a way that there is so much more attention. There were several other Irish people at the conference. And as far as we know, there was only maybe two Irish organizations there. FASTA was one of them. So we think it's, it'd be really good to draw some more attention to the importance of this conference within Ireland, partly because there is this debate now in Ireland that's been going for the last little while about what the economy is for. And Sean, would you like to say a few words about the role of our, our President Michael D. Higgins in that debate? Yes, indeed. I've been at several events recently, both online and particularly this one where our president, Michael D, has been mentioned. People talk enviously about having a president who speaks about the economy and about well-being in the way that he does. And we're very conscious of the reaction from some prominent economists in Ireland to the president's recent speech and our obsession with growth, so to speak. But we're also conscious of the prevailing political consensus in Ireland about growth. It was great to see Maria Walsh there, to a certain extent, being involved in the organisation. But we're also conscious that growth and economic growth and still a reliance on GDP would be mainstream among most of the political parties in Ireland. And even the Taoiseach's recent comment about the need, as he uh, ostensibly put it, to grow the cake indicates where we're at in Ireland in our thinking. And all of this was uh, contested very, very strongly. Um, the notion of growth, the notion of sustainable growth, the notion of green growth and how all these concepts fit together at the conference. One of the very striking aspects of the conference was the, I suppose, the age profile of those who were there and also the number of females who were there. Young females probably outnumbered certainly a lot of the older males in the audience. But also there was a very strong representation from civil society organizations, those active in questioning the current system and those who are looking to the future, to a different future perhaps, to where traditionally economists and our politicians have been taking us. As a precursor to the event, there was a coming together of civil society organizations and Caroline was one of those who was involved in that event. Yes, I was fortunate enough to be at that event just before the conference, which was actually a really good prelude to the conference because it meant that I met a fair number of people who were working on in many, many different areas to do with social justice and youth rights, as well as the environment. Also Global South, which of course is part of social justice and youth rights for that matter. And so it was really great to exchange insights and well, also it was a very nicely organized event. There was music, it was very creative and thoughtfully done. Um, so I'd just like to thank the organizers. There was the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, European Environmental Bureau, Friends of the Earth Europe and the European Youth Forum who put it all together with a great deal of work. 
and so that was a really helpful introduction to the conference because then in the course of the three days of the conference which are all completely packed and absolutely jammed with things to do there was always this little network of people who you could easily connect with and exchange comments with and so on sean do you want to say a few words about the actual conference yes indeed well i mentioned earlier on there were seven plenaries and 20 panels so it would be impossible for us even if we had gone into detail on those for us to deal with all of those in a single podcast obviously we'd strongly encourage people to go and look at the the material which is available but in this one what we hope to do is to focus on two of the plenary sessions perhaps with a little introduction beforehand of really emerging thinking that was coming out through the conference the two plenaries were plenary five and plenary six plenary five was entitled building post-growth macroeconomic governance framework aligning tools rules and policies with eu political goals and plenary six was the power of economic models on decision making and society at large. But perhaps before we delve into those in a little detail, and, and we've chosen a few of the speakers that particularly appeal to us. Caroline, you might give an overview as to conceptually where these talks were fitting in, so to speak. I think the beginning, if we zoom out a little, as you say, and look for an overview, I think there was a lot of analysis of what's wrong with the current system. And sometimes in some ways, I felt like the conference could have been called beyond Europe as much as beyond growth, because I felt as though the many in, in the audience and quite a few panelists really emphasize the need to think globally and holistically in terms of the future and not only Europe's position in the world, but to think beyond that as well. There were a couple of the more official speakers who made some comments that sort of indicated that they thought Europe had some sort of inherent right to, to claim a large portion of the world's resources and to be a kind of a leader and even to teach other countries what to do. And I could see how that could be really found very insulting by a lot of people from other countries who've been colonized, who've been historically very, very badly treated. And if you look at the balance of trade in the world still, as was pointed out by Jason Hickel, for example, in his talk and by several of the other speakers as well, it's just grotesquely imbalanced in favor of the wealthy countries. So we're still in this very, very unbalanced world situation. And I felt like that was a very important theme to, to emphasize. And it seems as though as the organizer, the main organizer of the conference, uh, Philippe Lambert uh, mentioned, some of the speakers seem to be a little bit disconnected from scientific reality when the, in their analysis of what Europe could achieve, you know, and Europe, what Europe's fair share is and what growth could achieve. So I thought it was very important that these things were brought into question and discussed. And um, as Anne Pettifor said, we need to be humble, you know, we're coming from where we are and with the history that we are, we need to be very careful and assume that we know best and we know what's right for the rest of the world. So there was a certain amount of um, tension about that. I thought that was a really important focus of the, of the whole thing. And then in FASTA for many years, I mean, we've always argued that a big part of what is causing the problems we have is the system, the economic system and how it's set up. And it's not so much that the people involved are inherently evil or malicious. We're all flawed and we all make mistakes and sometimes people are arrogant or whatever. That's not all there is to it. It's also that the system actually pressures people or encourages behavior that doesn't work well in the, in the global sense. And 
So it's important to think about the system and think about the assumptions in the system, what's being assumed to be successful or an example of progress or success. And that ties in with a lot of ideas about what models are used in economics. This brings us back yet again to what the president said, Michael D. Higgins in his speech and his criticism of what he thought of as an empty way of looking at economics or, or an empty kind of economics, approach to economics. And it's interesting to me that in the reaction to his speech, some of the Irish economists, sort of more prominent Irish economists, I think they were very offended because they thought he was saying that they didn't care about the environment or about inequality. But when I look at his speech, that's not really what I get. I, I have a different interpretation. I think he was saying that the, this, this way of thinking about the world is the problem. It's not, it's not an attack on individual people. Or it's not saying these people have bad values or they're just bad people. It's, it's a way of thinking about the world. It's the kind of assumptions that we make about the world. So this leads on to this whole idea about models. And there was a very interesting talk in Plenary 6 by Gael Giraud about how economic models can lead to the wrong policies, about uh, flawed models leading to bad policy, basically. Sean, do you want to say a word about that one? Yes, indeed. And I think this is very much going along the road of our president. But anyway, Gail Giraud is professor and director of research at the CNRS in France. And he broke his talk down into three areas. First of all, he, he all about macroeconomic models. And he was saying that they lead at the moment to very wrong policies and that the built-in assumptions that these models have encapsulate implicit policies. He only spoke a little bit about better models, and he, he claimed that they are perhaps not ideal or perfect, but they are there. So he started off by talking about two research papers that were both published in 2016, one by Paul Romer and the other by Olivier Blanchard. And essentially they were saying that macroeconomics has gone backwards and is no longer a science, according to Paul Romer. And Olivier Blanchard um, was talking that the models that we're talking about are at odds with reality and flawed. And then he, he proceeded to give some really good examples. So he took the recommendations of the Troika to Greece and, and showed that consistently what they were doing, assuming that the economy was in equilibrium, but the economy was not obviously not in equilibrium. So all their projections were consistently wrong over a number of years. And we all know what the impact on Greece was. And I felt that when I saw the presentation, I'd love him to have done the same thing for Ireland. He also showed from the International Energy Agency that their forecasts for the price of oil assume a linear progression from an economic point of view. But, but in actual fact, the dynamics of the economy is not linear, and therefore the forecasts were totally out of kilter with reality. And then he also talked about public debt and riskiness and how the link between public debt and riskiness, depending on, uh, on the perspective you took, would have completely different consequences based on the different models. And there are different, there are different models available to look at those. So, and he gave some other examples of how these so-called 
the formulae or models that are used at an economic, at a European economic level can lead to very, very different consequences um, based on what your assumptions are. He had some other things to say about money creation and that money creation is not necessarily inflationary and the assumption that savings leads to investment. He felt that this assumption assumes, therefore, that we should take care of rich people because they're the ones who've got all the money. But exactly the opposite is true. So this leads to the public policies being placed with a wrong emphasis, so to speak. So that was just uh, Gail. So maybe, uh, Caroline, you might like to comment on anything else that Gail said. Sure, yeah, thanks. I, I thought that was a good summary. I mean, one thing that's also really struck me also about the discussion that he he had on or the mentions he had of, of oil was the assumption in kind of some economic models that the demand of oil is reflected by oil's price so or the or maybe a better way to put it actually is the role of oil in the economy or the importance of oil in the economy is reflected by its price and that leads to huge mis perceptions because you can think of the oil has a low price well you don't really need oil all that much but in fact oil is still very very central to the economy and the fact that it might have a low price has nothing to do with the real its real role in the economy so there are all these subtleties that aren't reflected in the model but that are vital i mean if you want to avoid an economic crash if you want to achieve an energy transition that's um smooth as it possibly can be then you know you need to be taking these things into account so and i also found his presentation entertaining because even though it was quite technical, there was some artistic license on the graphs and, you know, it was fun. There were, there were animal themes and it's well worth a look. It's, it keeps your interest. And then this brings me to another presentation by Philippa Siegel-Gluckner, who is the director of Dotsent Zukunft, sorry for my German. And she was in plenary five, so she was a little bit earlier in the day, but her presentation had a lot of connections or was it actually laid a good some good groundwork for the one by Gael Giraud because she was talking, she was focusing particularly on the European fiscal framework. In other words, the rules that enable or don't enable European member states to spend, invest in, in public services and so on. So it's the famous stability and growth pact that everybody knows about. The idea that there have to be very strict spending limits and the government's debt mustn't exceed its GDP too much, you know, that by the, there are fixed percentages by which it's supposed to, which it's supposed to abide by and so on. And so recently there has been some reform or suggested reforms, the commission's come out with some. Um, and there was a lot of hope that these reforms would take environmental goals into account because if we're going to really be serious about getting past fossil fuel and getting into a much less impactful economy there's going to need to be a lot of upfront investment an awful lot of the things that are needed for the green transition once they're up and running they they need relatively little investment but they need a lot at the beginning you know things like retrofitting and switching you know in, installing renewable energy and so on so this is very important and so this is this is, puts a huge onus on the state to help to come up with the money for that because again there have been studies that were mentioned during the conference indicating that an awful lot of this isn't going to be inherently profitable and so it needs to it needs to have state backing it needs to have public funds to help us along it's really vital. But what we're doing in Europe at the moment is, as uh, Philippa mentioned or explained very clearly, is that we're basically locking ourselves into a straitjacket because of all these rules about debt and deficit, which haven't really been relaxed in a meaningful way with these this proposed reform. They're, if anything, they're in a way more absurd than before, because now, as she explained in her discussion, 
there, there, there are all these projections being made. If a country is having difficulty with repayments, or if its debt is considered to be too big, then it's, it's going to be looked at and examined. And there are going to be projections made for how it should repay its debt over the next 14 years, or it might have been 14, I forget. And then I think on, on some circumstances, the next 17 years. And if you think about that, you know, we're meant to be almost finished with the energy transition by then. So if during this long time frame, countries are going to be constrained in their spending in this way, it just seems very, very counterproductive and short-sighted and really focusing on the wrong goals. So yeah, her, her talk was, I thought, very clear and she really made a good job of, of explaining the difficulties with this and why it's really, uh, all of these choices are political ultimately. They're framed as though they're objective and completely technocratic, but they're not. All of these choices, all these projections about countries, debt repayments and so on, they make assumptions about the growth rate in the future and about interest rates in the future. And all of these things are based on basically ideological beliefs. We all have ideological beliefs. We can't escape that, but we need to bring them out into the open and examine them and critique them and not just pretend that we're being objective or pretend to ourselves, maybe even that we're being objective when we're not. And so all of this stuff is, is vital because we can really, it would be just uh, so, it's such a, an awful thing to crimp the possibilities in such an artificial way for managing to achieve this transition in Europe and then also elsewhere as well. Did you want to add anything, Sean, about that? Yeah, I think one of the key things for me that I got out of it is that the debt to GDP ratio, 60% as it currently is, first of all, it's based on GDP and GDP is, a, as we all know, a flawed indicator, but it also doesn't take into consideration when they're doing the calculation, anything about climate policy, or it doesn't take into consideration any of the aspirations that we might have about social policy or just transition or so on. So uh, she actually used the words, the word schizophrenic about it, how Europe can create these rules, which have nothing to do with the other objectives, which we might have the broader objectives for economies. And also, I think when she she came to finalize her talk, she said that basically, there should be an opening up of how these rules are brought together. The debt and sustainability analyses for countries should be public, they should be available. And this was a theme that came up many times about the democratic deficit that there is about how some of these instruments and models and, and rules and goals are brought together. She also mentioned that, by the way, that there are alternatives to debt to GDP ratio, which would incorporate, if you like, a better integration of green approaches and, and linking in with climate change. And, and that might lead us on to the third speaker that we just wanted to mention, Anne Pettifor, because she came to the pretty much the same conclusion from a different point of view. Anne was, was speaking in plenary six as well, the same as Gail Giro. And her perspective was that basically we're all agreed about certain concepts at the conference was we were talking about sufficiency and we were talking about regenerative economics and so on. But she said that basically there are two big sites of power, as she called them, that exist. And when I say what they are, you'll understand, I think, the, the, the fossil fuel site of power. 
but also she talked and she said maybe we understand the fossil fuel industry and maybe we're dealing with it a, a little bit but there's another side of power which perhaps doesn't get as much attention which she called the money interests which to a certain extent lies outside democracy and we need to focus much more on monetary policy and rather than fiscal policy so and basically she was saying that the global capitalist interests need the support and the collateral from governments um, government bonds so that they can continue and essentially these bonds are produced by the taxpayers by the 90% of the workers rather than the 1% who are who are making use of the money so to speak and so that on the one hand, and then she also talked about the crisis of overproduction and underconsumption, which is leading to ultimately to a financial crisis. So that perhaps we have too many goods and services, but too little purchasing power. And we tend to focus on the 99% of people who don't have the purchasing power rather than on the 1% who have all the money, so to speak. So we should stop attacking the 99% who are turning increasingly to the far right for help, but focus our attention on the 1%. And I think in that context, they mentioned the Gilets jaunes. It came up at a number of presentations. So basically what Anne was suggesting was that we need to shine a very bright light on this 1% and how they use finance. We need to educate ourselves. The 1% is represented by the Wall Street, the Frankfurt, the City of London, and so on. And they're using publicly backed government bonds for their power. And we ultimately, in democratic countries, we have the power to change that. We need to take it. We need to use it. We need to educate ourselves. And we need to get politicians to take a leadership position on it. And we need to, as she said, blow up the easy money pipeline. Yeah, yeah, that was a powerful speech. And as you said, or as you uh, implied, there's a danger of the far right coming in, like with the Gilets Jaunes movement, for example, not all of whom were far right, but just it's it's true that there's a real, I think things are so grossly unfair and there's such a difficulty in simply getting through the month, then that's, that triggers all kinds of problems, of course, and it makes things very unstable. And to me, it ties in with a feeling that I got from a few of the panelists through the conference and also just from chatting to people. I think there's a huge fear about, there was a part of the ambiguity about the opening speeches at the conference, for example, derived from a fear of the upcoming elections next year in the parliament. And the polls at the moment are showing a swing to the right, which is very worrying, obviously, very worrying. Uh, the problem is that some politicians at the political centre seem to believe the only way to prevent this swing to the right is to keep on pushing for growth. And I think they're badly misreading the situation and they're trying to use the wrong tools to fix the problem, tools that are actually illusory and imaginary. They don't even exist in real life because all of the scientific evidence indicates that, in fact, we can't have infinite growth. So the focus needs to be on distributing wealth more fairly and making sure that people's needs can be met in terms of things like energy and food security. And that's the only way to really prevent the far right from taking hold. 
just in conclusion and the final plenary, which really we're not going to talk about today, but it was a very emotional experience. And even uh, Philippe Lambert, who was the main uh, Belgian MEP, who was the main person, if you like, the leader behind it, he, he became very emotional as he was concluding it. But what was really, really striking, and this came across in that final session, that I mentioned earlier on about the youth and the emphasis among females in particular, they were taking the lead on a number of topics, you know, mentioning specifically the just transition, uh, mentioning the caring economy and so on. But there were two particular speeches towards the end by young people that maybe we'll devote more attention to later on. Agatha Meissner, who's director of Generation Climate Europe, and Anuna De Waver, who was a climate and social justice activist, which brought all of the audience to their feet with their really energetic, I suppose, exhortations is the right word, uh, and, and talking that we need to avoid youth washing and that young people are not responsible for these problems, but they were conveying an enormous energy and an enthusiasm, I think, to politicians everywhere looking for leadership to change the current system. And maybe just on that note, maybe we should look back to our president, Michael D, and maybe we should look to him for as, as an old man who does energize the Irish population. But maybe he, he will be encouraged and we hope he listens to our podcast and he gets some flavor of what went on in, in the European Parliament. So we mentioned that all the material is available. If you just search for Beyond Growth, it's at a, a .eu is the, and all the material is available there. And we'll put the exact detail up on our website. And over to you, Caroline. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening. And as Sean mentioned, we're, we're probably going to have more about on this conference in the next few months because it was such a seminal event for us. Uh, so please do check back and follow us on social media. Spread the word about our work if you find it interesting about our podcasts. Thanks to Alicia Kelly for her music on the harp, as always. Mm-hmm.